Discovered by the Germans in 1904, they named it San Diego, which of course in German means a whale's vagina. Hello friends, and welcome along to Have You Seen This? Thanks for pressing play, so great of you to join us for this episode. I've been genuinely excited about this one for a while now, so I think it should be great. Talking of greatness, the show would be nothing without them, my amazing co-hosts, Paul Breen and other Ben Mercer. Guys, hello. Hello, how are we all doing? Hello everyone, how are you doing? And the very first guest in our pod series, we are joined by writer, director, composer and cinematographer and all-round great guy, Brad James from Lyceum Entertainment. Brad, hello. Hello there, how is everyone? Very, very good. You okay? I'm fantastic, thank you very much. Great. So I figured before we start, we probably need to address the roaring elephant in the room and I think we would be remiss if we went any further on this podcast without, you know, talking about the industry and just saying to our brothers and sisters across cinema, exhibition, distribution, you know, all four of us sitting on this podcast are probably uh, affected right now by what's happening with the cinema and entertainment industry. And we just want to say, you know, we're with you. Big hugs. We'll get through it. We'll come through the other side. Enjoy the podcast for what it is. And uh, yeah, sorry, man. It's a shit situation, but we're all in this together, right? Damn right. It's an absolute shit show. I think the distributors are showing a lack of foresight. I understand things have got to make money, but you know, there need to be cinemas open at some point for them to be able to actually make some money. And if they keep pulling films from the schedule cinemas are going to close down you know they're just not going to reopen full stop so certainly some of the independents are are struggling there's a few closing already and there's going to be nowhere for these guys to actually show their films to a wide audience yes they can put them on streaming services but as we discussed on the last pod they'll get ripped they won't make their money yeah they need to be in the cinemas where they belong i mean brad as a filmmaker what are your thoughts on this i was just about to say i think the the time has come now netflix is just going to dominate I think it's been coming slowly. All the studio heads have obviously been complaining about it. And I think now, and especially next year, unfortunately, it's going to be the time when streaming services, Netflix, Amazon, and everything completely takes over. And it's such a shame because I feel like everyone's pushing their films back, especially till next year, to 2021, mm-hmm. just because they've seen what's happened with Tenet. They've seen it's not made the money that it could have made. Um, so then they've just thought, right, let's forget 2020, move it to next year, and get everything back up running then but forgetting everyone's got rent to pay bills to pay Mm -hmm. mouths to feed so yeah Um, i think it's just a a big shame but i think it's that final push where online consuming of media is just going to completely take over now it's that final stage i feel well ben anything to add i'm sort of giving a a virtual hug to anyone working in the industry right now because like i feel your pain it's a situation that is out of our control there are certain elements that are happening now which are within people's control and i think that's the most frustrating bit we're finding now is that people are being either greedy or short-sighted they're not playing ball to try and secure an industry for next year it's all about the short term as always with the human race it's stupid and it's gutting and like all of us we're we're just i'm just angry at the moment i'm just i'm just cross yeah why are we closed (laughs) i think i think i've gone through anger i'm 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 in the well of despair at the moment waiting for waiting for the upswing but anyway let's not stay negative for too long let's let's move on so We ended the last episode with a question, which means I'm starting with a question, and that was a fairly easy one by all accounts. So Tom Hanks played the professor in the 2004 Coen Brothers remake of Lady Killers. 
who played this role in the original 1955 version. Uh, we did have a correct answer on the Facebook page from Paul Alliston, which Paul thankfully gave away a couple of days ago. Cheers, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a difficult question, mate. Come on. No, it let's wasn't. Be honest. Was it not? Brad, do you know this one? Yeah, yeah. I've not seen it in ages, but it's a classic. Do you want me to say the, the answer? Go on, hit us with it. Oh, it's Mr. Obi-Wan himself, isn't it? Mr. Alec Guinness? <laughs> Indeed, yes. Reference completely lost on me. Uh, Alec Guinness, right? <laughs> You've seen that one. So I'm hoping the question at the end of this pod is slightly more difficult. It's a Disney question. Even though Disney are arseholes, I'm going to include them at the end of the pod. Simply saying that opinions are find a way. Regular show starter then. Big picks from the small screen. Curious to see what we've all been watching outside of the two films in review. And we'd like to start with a guest. So, so Brad, what, what's been what's been entertaining you? Okay, so I've been watching, I, it's, I think it's been out for a little while, but I've only just really started to get into it, was Gangs of London. Oh, what um, a show. Fantastic show. Brilliant I show. completely didn't expect it to be the way it was. Stylish, the cinematography was slick. The fight scenes were crafty, it was interesting, and not a lot of things really grip me. I have to be gripped within the first 10 minutes, otherwise I'm moving on to the next thing. Mm. Um, and something about Gangs of London just gripped me from the start, throughout it all. I was interested, the characters, the way the story unfolded, it was great. So that's definitely mm. something that I, I recommend to people as well, if you can still catch it. I know it was on Sky, but... Yeah, yeah you, can, yeah, you can still get it on Sky box sets or whichever version it's on, but yeah, it's yeah, an absolutely was, fantastic was, show. Great, yeah, great. It's, still on, it's still on Now TV as well, I think. Oh, is it? Nice. Yeah. They're just about to start shooting on season two. I can't wait for that. I yeah, can't wait. Great. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you, the other thing was, one thing that I just thought was, hit the nail on the head for everything that's happening at the moment was the South Park pandemic special. Was <laughs> <laughs> oh, it good? It was fantastic. It honestly hit the nail on the head. It was so smart with the way it was written, the satire of it. It wasn't too crass with its like American humour. It was just really, really just, oh, it was great. Hit the nail on the head. Yeah, my wife's a big South Park fan. That was a great, great one. Amazing. I've got a Breen-style list. So, funnily enough, I've had a bunch of time on my hands recently. Not entirely Hammond, sure please why. Tell me, Hammond, please tell me you've watched Tenet. I haven't seen Tenet. <laughs> Let me tell you the reason why I haven't seen Tenet. So I had three days left to watch it before the cinemas closed. Mm. And honestly, in those three days, I had absolutely no fucking intention of sitting in the cinema for three hours. It was <laughs> yeah. it was the last place I wanted to be. My head wasn't in it. There was no way mm. I would have enjoyed sitting in Tenet for three hours. So To be honest, of... even if your head was in the right place, you probably wouldn't have enjoyed it anyway. <laughs> it doesn't help. <laughs> it's, it's, from my point of view, it's a... a Quite a big waste of time. I felt like, just going back to South Park, if you've seen the, the Inception episode, uh -huh. the parody of it all and the way Christopher Nolan explains every single key plot point, I feel like Tenet was a parody of a Christopher Nolan film. Amazing. I felt like it was taking the mic, really. It was like, then this is happening, then this is happening, and it was explaining yeah. everything and everything. The next scene was just exposition and exposition, and I felt like it was a parody of a Christopher Nolan film, to be honest. Brilliant. So I really haven't missed out on much. <laughs> but listen, when, when the cinemas reopen, it's likely we're still going to be showing it, so I'll get round to it in probably mid-March. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, anyway, back to my Breen-style list. So uh, tv one, I continued watching Workaholics, and as a correction, on the last episode, uh, I said it was on Netflix. It's actually on Prime. So Workaholics is fantastic. Uh, I'm now three episodes deep into Game of Thrones. I've seen the first three episodes now, so I'm wow. three, out, three hours in. And my and my favourite takeaway is that now I understand Dwight teaching Erin Dothraki in the American office. So that makes sense to me now, which is great. <laughs> I've started re-watching Parks and Rec from the start just because I love it. It's lighthearted. It just takes me to just a, a no-brainer type place. And then film-wise, uh, I'm going to do this in 
descending order. So I watched David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. I watched it at home, not in the cinema. And it just shows that the human race are assholes and we are just destroying everything around us just at a rate of knots. I then watched Hustlers, 2019 J-Lo flick, which mm. was way, way better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I then had a little retro afternoon. So I watched all three of these in one afternoon in a row. So I started with Spaceballs and then I watched The Labyrinth and then I finished with Three Amigos. So that wow. was amazing. Yeah. That was a nice. great afternoon. Yeah, really fun afternoon. My final one, and please avoid this god-awful piece of shit at all costs, Hoobie Halloween. Oh, Adam Sandler's new How are you spending on these? It's, <laughs> I got Adam Sandler in it. it it's one of his oh, Netflix comedies. Why would you watch it? You know it's going to be shit. Because I'm willing to give everything a go. Right now, I'm trying to find a happy place, okay? <laughs> Hoobie Halloween. And you think that's with Adam Sandler? Hoobie Halloween is not it, let me tell you. It is, I looked back through my letterbox. It is the only film I've given one star to. It is, wow. it's worse, it's worse than Jack and Jill. Oh, wow. Let that sink in. So there's, there's my ones to avoid. But uh, yeah, there you go. There's my list. What so, gets me is that Adam Sandler films, they are slowly getting worse and worse. But when I hear um, the bosses of Netflix talk, they always say, Around the world, if they could have a top 10, number one is always whatever Adam Sandler film they bring out. Always. Oh, around the world, yeah. whether it's Japan, yeah. America, England, you're anywhere. And it's it, just, it just blows well. my mind how that even... Is that, that because maybe the, like, the, the slapstick nature of it appeals to non-English speakers? Sim similar to Mr. Bean. I mean, Mr. Bean was so popular across mainland Europe back in the kind mm. of night because, you know, there was no language barrier. So maybe Adam Sandler's just ridiculous style of slapstick comedy maybe, maybe translates. I don't know. I feel it's uh, everybody's watching them because they're expecting something to be one of those 90s classics, something to make you laugh, but yeah. he's, uh, he's just missing the, the ball. Is it, is, it, is it possible that Adam Sandler pays for like 8,000 Netflix accounts and he just loops his own <laughs> stuff? <just laughs> Netflix are paying him the top dollars. Like they, they signed yeah. him into like a six gajillion million yeah. dollar yeah, deal yeah, yeah. for like six yeah. films. I think it's just because he, as you said, he has international brand appeal. He is his own brand. So I think when people watch things like I can't even remember the name of the film. It's already gone. Hoobie, Hubba, Hoobie, Hoobie, Halloween. Hoobie Halloween. Fuck me. Um, when people are watching these things, they know exactly what they're going to get because they, they love the brand. They're not mm. trying to watch him do like a punk drunk love or a uncut gems, the things that we would appreciate. They're just watching Adam Sandler be Adam Sandler in the same way that people watch Liam Neeson films to watch Liam Neeson be a middle-aged action man, mm. not yeah. do his own stunts. Yeah. Anyway, we've spent far too much time talking about Adam Sandler. Should we move on? <laughs> <laughs> so look, I'll go through my obviously long list. As you could tell, I've had a huge amount of time on my hands. So I binged the entire season of Away on Netflix uh, with Hilary Swank, which is about, it's great. It's really good. I mean, it's not for all mankind, mm. uh, which was, was brilliant on uh, Apple TV Plus. But um, I actually think it's a really good show it's about a, a female astronaut. She's the commander of a team that, that have taken the first voyage to Mars. It's a really, really good show written by the guys that did The Good Wife. So would rec definitely recommend it. And I'm hoping it goes to a second season. Mm. I rewatched The Peanut Butter Falcon because nice. I needed to feel <laughs> <You> good. <weren't>. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to try and feel good. And that film is life affirming. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And God, that stands out to repeat viewing. It's wonderful. I watched on your guys' recommendation from last uh, last pod, I watched The Gentleman. Did you love it? Oh, I loved it. It's, uh, it's just so much fun. And it, it is just what it says on the tin. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's it's that classic amalgamation of all his stuff brought into... Yeah, it's Guy uh, Ritchie's greatest hits. Yeah, yeah. So that was great. Finally got around to watching Le Mans 66, which I 
completely missed didn't just didn't have a chance to watch it last time around and really enjoyed it i think it was really really good and then the sound design on the cars is insane yeah Um, the way they shot those races yeah i just it's very lush vibrant colors of the period yeah and i watched it in watched it in uhd uh, as well so it looked beautiful uh, on the screen and then i watched last night i I was just looking around for stuff i thought i'll give this a go there's a film on netflix called the grandmaster which is uh, another biopic of it man uh, with with, with, uh, tony leung fantastic the cinematography is wonderful it looks absolutely beautiful the fight choreography is great and it's a very different take on it. I mean, Donnie Yen is my man from the first one, but uh, Tony Leung does a great job. Definitely yeah, so my wheelhouse. All about the martial art films, me. <laughs> <laughs> you should get, there's some brilliant, brilliant, there's some brilliant stuff out there. Uh, martial, martial arts art films, films, World War II football films. It's what Ben loves. It's <laughs> <laughs> my wheelhouse. Well, talking of things that I maybe don't know enough about, on your recommendation, I did go to the cinema and I watched the re-release of Memories of a Murder. Oh, oh great. Beautiful um, film. Wow, yeah, what a film. It's incredible. It's <laughs> yeah. got huge Zodiac vibes. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen David Finch's um, Zodiac from 2007, but the, mm-hmm. the the similarities between the two films, essentially the pursuit of the police trying to catch a serial killer and maybe not getting as close as they should do, was great. But what I loved about this film is... They're, they're so rubbish they're really rubbish cops <laughs> they abuse their powers they're really bad at their jobs but even to the film's strength like even the fact that they you, you don't like them as people you do start to really start to root for them about halfway through mm-hmm. and when the film really shifts into gear and they become obsessed with trying to track down this killer the cinematography is gorgeous the black and white um use with the sparing sort of splashes of color on the screen to to highlight certain elements on the frame yeah, great, great film. So cheers for recommending that. That was, um, yeah. I thought that they were going to actually say in the film that they caught him. I didn't realise that happened like after the fact, like literally in the last like two or three years that this guy came forward. 2018, yeah. I believe, they tracked him down. Maybe last year wow. they finally caught the killer, yeah. 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 He got arrested for, I think he murdered his sister. Uh, he raped like and murdered his sister-in-law. Raped and murdered his, his sister-in-law, oh. that's it. And then they were taken into custody. He, with the new, obviously with forensics having moved on, they were able to match him up and he admitted... Yeah, everything that he'd done, which was obviously the basis of the film. Lovely guy. Charming, Tenant. in fact. <laughs> Next <laughs> week's guest. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring it back to Tenant, but I have watched it again. So I've ben, now seen this ben, film. Ben, <laughs> let it go. Three let time. it go. No, I won't. I, Brad, you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. It is a parody of Christopher Nolan films. It is. It is. Um, understanding it doesn't make the film any better. The things that work, work, and the things that don't, don't. And it's still a very kind of middling three-star, three-out-of-five film for me. And I really wish I loved it more. But no, I think that's that sort of... I'm going to put it to bed now and come back to it, you know, when it comes out on, on the home release. Because I will buy it because I'm a sucker for Nolan. I, I, it still looks great. The set pieces are still incredible. And the way that he films stuff so grounded, like he wants to... like. He gets the money from Warner's like, I want to crash a, a plane into a building. And then Warner's goes, yeah, sure. How much do you want? Fine, go and do it. I love that about Nolan. But yeah, this is not one of his best, uh, unfortunately. I rewatched, don't judge me, 2000's Pitch Black and 2004's The Chronicles of Riddick. Pitch Black's fantastic. It is. Is it? to be honest i've not watched it since the year it came out so don't judge me (laughs) i watched these because when the dune when uh, denise uh, denise dennis Villeneuve. 
Thank you. (laughs) Dennis Villeneuve, when his Dune trailer dropped, I couldn't help but watch it and think, God, this looks exactly like the Chronicles of Riddick. So I went back and my partner hadn't seen either. So I thought, I can't watch Chronicles of Riddick without making a sit through Pitch Black first. So we watched Pitch Black. B-movie affair. CGI hasn't dated well. It's fine. It's, It's perfectly fine. But a lot of it is hampered by some very late 90s uh, cliches however when you get to chronicles of riddick i'm so fascinated with this film it's like in space no one can hear vin diesel launch his own vanity project (laughs) i cannot like it's 2002 you're vin diesel you've come off the back of fast and furious you've come off the back of xxx which were moderately successful in the cinema and you go to universal and you go right i don't want to do the sequels to those what i want to do is take my b character my sub character who isn't like the main person in pitch back and build a franchise around him. And Universal going, yeah, here's $110 million, go for it. (laughs) And you get this absolutely mental space opera that makes absolutely no sense. And Dame Judi Dench is in this film, I don't know if you remember. And the only reason she's in the film is because Vin Diesel basically like coerced her to be in the film like she said no she didn't want to do it and she was doing a stage show on broadway and he just flooded her dressing room with flowers until she agreed to be in it and she had absolutely no idea what's going on it's a curioso in just it's (laughs) mental to see something that bombastic that just isn't being made anymore and just the fact that he was given the money to just make this nonsense piece of sci-fi opera is is mental so i actually for what is worth i actually quite like it but it is a mess yeah i agree with you it was just, there was so, like you say it was some kind of space opera it was away from the style and the aesthetic of pitch black which i enjoyed so i feel like it was a complete just a, a different direction he went with it you're not afraid of the dark are you it is Right, so for what it's worth, we've kind of touched on it already. What there is left of it, it's it's time for Mercer's box office breakdown. The top three of the UK box office, with let's face it, a third of the cinemas in the UK currently being shut. Obviously, Tenant's coming at number one again. That's now made sixteen point five million pounds. It's tracked to basically equal what Interstellar made in twenty fourteen. So it's going to taper out about like twenty twenty million. That's what they're reckoning. Saint Maud came straight in at number two. That's come in at two hundred and sixty. 3k and then you've got akira number three which is really heartening to see uh, it's great to see that in the top five obviously mm. these all these films are making pebbles in terms of, of of the money but it's good to see it in the top three and then uh number four number five got after we collided and warner's cats and dogs pause unite which i'm sure we're all very gutted we didn't get a chance to see in the cinema so <laughs> before we dive into the big topic which we've already alluded to at the beginning i thought maybe we can start with something a bit lighter but still mm pretty depressing and i was going to ask you guys the same question that was posed to john cusack's uh, rob gordon in 2000's high fidelity do you have soul <laughs> <laughs> it seems disney plus are the only people that have soul yes well seen as seen as i'm refusing to give disney a penny for the rest of my life i will not be subscribing to disney plus and i won't be watching soul on christmas day i'll be watching elf on comedy central or something <laughs> <laughs> depressing state of affairs what's going on and disney announcing that they are literally just now targeting streaming that's that's going to be what they are doing just yeah. targeting their streaming platform which is an affront to everything i've worked for for the last 20 years i was just about to say this is something that's never really happened before and going back to what i said earlier it's this is that time where the fight to kind of hold back 
the streaming services and to get everyone back into cinemas. I think uh, with that decision for Disney to then go full hog on the on the streaming services is is kind of a, a testament to that, really. But have they not learned their lesson from Mulan? Like, well, they have, haven't well, they? Yeah. If they release we, things for free. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, to make, make even less money. It's a great business model. <laughs> <laughs> we, were upon, we were touching upon this last week. Like, as Paul said, like, if Disney had made Mulan a success, they would be singing a song and dance about it, but they're not. Yeah. And yeah. here's yeah. his soul, and it's it's coming out on their just their regular platform, which I think speaks volumes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think the price of Mulan, was it close to, was it £19, something like that? It was, so, it was yeah. $19.99 in the UK and $29.99 in the US. Which is well over double what cinema prices are up here. So, hmm. I mean... If they were to charge a normal cinema ticket price, maybe they may, would have made more money just because of that fact. But I think people paying £20 to have a premiere in your living room watching the the biggest movie to come out on your TV that you've just watched the news on, I feel like £20 is just a ridiculous amount. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what shot him in the foot, really. Is And I think the, the negative press around that does not help whatsoever. It keeps them... 100%, yeah. It keeps them quite, on, I'd say, on a lower tier to Netflix. If they didn't oh, do sure. that, they would have been up there. But I think, I think it's uh, definitely one of the worst decisions they've made. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I think trying to be the heroes and saying, "Well, we're going to give you Soul on Christmas Day just for your regular subscription rate." I don't think that's enough redemption. It it's smacks a, it's of desperation. It's a kick in the teeth for Pixar because Pixar saying, "Well, are we not worth that? We've spent God knows how many years making." absolutely amazing films why are you going to release mulan for 20 pound and then give ours away for free where mm -hmm. does the uh yeah, the partnership point. work in that according to early early press uh, because it screened at the london film festival this is one of pixar's best films in years yeah i mean it looks great i mean the 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 early footage they released and the trailering is looks fantastic it looks like a great film it, it, it will do fantastically at christmas and i just feel like maybe they should have had a, a little faith in the industry and said well maybe if doors reopen christmas time new year time this is a fantastic February half-term movie in the UK. Yeah. Of course, um, shortly after we recorded the podcast, Universal uh, MGM decided mm -hmm. to delay Bond to next year. Arseholes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, come on. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. That was the film that was going to reinvigorate the industry and put faith back in all the other distributors because people were going to flood through the doors. The amount of comments from customers about, oh, I'm so looking forward to Bond. I can't wait for Bond. I can't wait for Bond. The number of people that were going to come in for the first time, having been concerned up to that point, mm. was huge. The amount of positive feedback about Bond was palpable. And the studio went, nah, fuck it. At it's least it has a theatrical release. You know, they're not. There's no, there's no At the video on, there's no video on demand shenanigans. They are saying it will have a theatrical release. Let's wait and see, shall we? Let's stay I, positive. I, I, it's, Let's it's, stay it's, positive. I want to be positive. I want to be positive. You can't get away from him. I'm blaming Trump. Yeah, if he'd have locked down the country when he should have done, LA and New York cinemas may have been open, and that's yeah. been the main stumbling block for distributors. That was uh, the in terms of pushing me as that was the linchpin. You, yeah. Those those films would have been released had New York and LA been open, but the country wasn't locked down. Pandemic was completely out of control in that country, purely simply because the people at the top weren't doing what they should have done, uh, just protecting their, their buddies in the city. And we're now, we're now in this situation where everything's shutting and all the films are moving. Cast your minds back to March and... Bond was the first film to start this domino effect of films being delayed. It was, so yeah. it's kind of poetic that they'd be the one to shut cinemas. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to wait till next year. 
So it's now time to turn our attention onto our guest. I first met Brad somewhere in London uh, around the early noughties, I think, when we were working in cinema together. It was very clear that Brad was a very creative guy and he probably stood out to me at the time as as he had a passion for film unlike anyone I'd ever met before. He's self-distributed his first major project from his company Lyceum Entertainment, which is infamous, uh, available now on Amazon Prime. What got you into filmmaking uh, and were there any particular films that have inspired you kind of as a child, as a teenager, as a filmmaker now? Yeah, so I have a bit of a strange story really because I was a late bloomer. So I was never really into movies as a kid. That was my brother's thing. So Mm -hmm. I have a brother, he's two years older than me, but I was obsessively focused on guitar and becoming a session musician. So my whole dream as a kid was to be a session musician, playing for uh, people in the top 10, things like that. My brother kept asking me to uh, watch a film called Planet Terror. Has anyone seen Planet Terror? Yeah, Robert yeah. Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez. So he kept yeah. asking me to play uh, to watch this. I refused for months and months and months. We went on a family holiday to Spain. I finally said, okay, we've got nothing else to do. I'll watch it. In the Spanish villa, we watched Planet Terror, and I was completely blown away by it. And I saw film as something that I hadn't seen it before, something you can be creative, you can do these different things. I kept watching the special features over and over again. You see Robert Rodriguez recording guitar and piano for the soundtracks for the film. And right there, it clicked that I could make images to my music. So the music I was creating, then I could add images to it. Mm. Um, And that's really where it all dawned. So I came back from Spain, and this was two weeks before enrolling on the college's course for music performance, because I was 16, just about to go to college. I had enrolled on music performance, and two weeks before, I changed the course to media production, and it all just started from there. Brilliant. (laughs) What a great story. Love that. So Infamous, available now on Amazon Prime. Uh, For those that are yet to see it, and I do thoroughly recommend it, uh, give us a brief synopsis. Infamous is about um, a group of fallen angels. They've been cast out of heaven for playful misbehaviour, and now they spend their time perched on the top of rooftops in Florence, watching down upon man committing sin. Really, these fallen angels are are like the personification of cause and effect, really. Uh, Like the visual embodiment of karma, say. So the film goes around Florence, Sicily, Paris, and London. And so the representation of these fallen angels really gets closer to home. I'm not religious, so I'm sure there's plenty of things in the film that I'm sure someone who is biblical probably finds offence to. (laughs) Or doesn't (laughs) think that it hits the nail on the head there. But as someone just looking at purely at stories and at narratives, um, I think this really told a good story and really had an original idea to something we're all used to, which is that cause and effect and karma idea really yeah yeah for sure i mean it looks amazing and there's some some stunning cinematography at play in this film as well as a lot of drama so obviously as you just mentioned took us to florence sicily paris back to london i mean how how was the shoot um any stories so what was kind of your vision i mean there was some beautiful rooftop scenery shots was it was all drone work and stuff like that no so well some of some of it's drone yeah so originally the original idea was thinking i could get a cheap ryanair flight to somewhere in italy for £200 there and back, and the production value that that would add to each shot, having Italy in the background, whether Mm. it's the rooftops or anything, would be absolutely amazing to have that backdrop for the film. So there was something about Florence that I really loved, and I wanted to visit anyway. So I spoke to a hotel, and they had this really amazing rooftop that obviously looked over the the dome, looked over most of uh, Florence, had the Tuscan hills in the background. It was perfect. So I sent them a few messages. Finally, they got back to me saying, of course, you can film here. We'll give you any assistance you can desire. It was the the best reply I ever got. I've never really been someone to suffer with anxiety, but I'd say going over to a different country, I couldn't speak the language, I was completely on my own, and it was in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Now I'm asking these actresses, I'm sending messages to people on a a casting site I've never used in Europe, saying, 
I'm going to be shooting a film in a hotel room. Obviously, you don't know who I am. Please come to my hotel room. I'll give you the, the oh, costume. No. So the anxiety was crippling. Honestly, it was horrible. Yeah, for sure. Um, wow. But luckily, I just pushed through that anxiety, didn't listen to those negative thoughts. And I met some incredible people that I still talk to now. They're helping me to learn Italian at the moment. And we help with different things. If they need an English accent or a Northern English accent for an audition, I'll send them their script of me reading it or performing it. Amazing. So the, the relationships I've built through doing that are life-changing. But that first time I went, unfortunately, when I came back, I did not like my footage. I'd gone over there with like building site LED lights. I knew how to compose a shot, but I didn't know the science behind lighting a shot with the Kelvin units, the lumens, looks readings. So I came back from Florence quite disheartened. I hit the books and just got really obsessive about it. Mm. And I just took it really, really seriously, rigorously studied cinematography and lighting and the psychology behind working with actors. And then four months later, returned to Florence, rebooked all the actresses and everything. My brother came with me this time because he's an actor. Um, and a filmmaker as well. So I used him as my security, uh, my art gallery security guard. So he was all in a suit and everything. Oh, nice. uh, reshot everything. Super happy with the footage. But on one of the days, because my brother was this art gallery security guard in the yeah, suit, yeah. running around the streets of Florence with a pistol, I do not recommend to anybody. <laughs> um, in 2018 as well, should I say a bit of turmoil in the world. So yeah. there was pa paramilitary everywhere. Red Beret paramilitary, I'm huge sure. stocky guys on every single corner. Yeah. So running around with a pistol wasn't the, the most ideal thing. So yeah, so I, I ended up obviously returning a few times, meeting up with these um, Italians, really bonding for life really over this shooting experience. It was a really crazy idea that just slowly became reality over the few years and just really just ticking off those boxes. So I'd recommend it to anyone. If you're a filmmaker, book a ticket, obviously maybe not now, maybe in a year or so, <laughs> book a ticket to go somewhere and the production value that it adds is incredible. So it was, it was a really great experience. Was it completely self-funded or did you, yeah, did you approach it? Yeah. yeah. So I was a teacher at the time. I was teaching media production and music technology at the college in Blackpool and that was quite a nice wage. So that built up and then through that, I was just going back and forward to, to Florence during that time. Fantastic. Amazing. Uh, so you're currently working on Redcoat. So how's, how's that all going? It's going really good, actually. So Redcoat's a film about a vulnerable British soldier who sends a series of letters back and forward to his distant French lover from a secret campaign in Bordeaux. Company officers start to realise that the opposition, so the French, are being informed of the British's every advance. So this soldier's honour and allegiance are doubted. Uh, Spanish mercenaries are then dispatched to, to go and arrest his French lover. And he's ultimately forced to sacrifice everything for what he loves and to, to flee the battalion uh, before he's seized and basically put to the guillotine. I wrote this concept when I was in London. So this was a good few years ago. I was learning about British history for the first time and the Napoleonic Wars and really that agitation between the British and the French that I've never really looked into history, to be honest. One thing, my dad passed away a couple of years ago and that really made me start writing films that are based around based around reality. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm really looking forward to getting it all finished and with a premiere in either December or January, um, depending on what the government regulations are. So, Brad, finally, before we move on, that's, that's your project. It all sounds great. Is uh, You've got a bit of an initiative going to try and get people into the industry. Um, I've seen some yeah. stuff on your Facebook. I think it's fantastic in a time of uncertainty that you're kind of willing to put your company forward for this. So can you just tell us, uh, tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so one of the things, when I came back from London, when I was in London, I had a lot of people I could rely on for filmmaking. When I came back to Blackpool, I had nobody. I was <laughs> completely on my own, a filmmaker in Blackpool. I didn't know who I could use, who I could rely on. I needed those roles to be filled. 
So through when I was being a teacher, I started to meet all these students that were, I'd say some of them were really, really professional, really adult about the whole thing. They would show their passion. So I'd start using them as my production assistants. Now, through doing that, I realized that there's a lot of young people that not only are really passionate about that, but are stuck because in Blackpool, there isn't an industry of film. There isn't really a media industry. Everything's kind of very labor intensive, should I say. When it came to it, I was thinking, if I go to make a film, if I train up these people, whether it's a joiner and I can train them to be a set builder, it would mean that in the end, I've created this bubble up in Blackpool. So when I come to film something, I've got my crew that I can rely on and people that I can trust as well. So basically that was the whole initiation of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And through doing that, through the films that we've filmed recently and through Infamous and with Redcoat, we've been sending out a lot of messages to different colleges and getting uh, students that are really interested in film to get their first mark on their CV in the film industry, which being in Blackpool can be very hard. Um, A lot of these 16, 17, 18 year olds don't find it very easy to go to Manchester or even to get into anything, say in Salford. Um, So to have that in Blackpool a tram journey away or a, a, a car journey away for five minutes, they can come on set, help us out, either be a production assistant or any of those roles. They can smash that right on their CV. Yeah, so basically that's the initiative is to help people who want to get into film to be able to bring a bit of a film industry to Blackpool and to be able to shoot in Blackpool. I think it's a really great thing. So feel free to send me an email at lisamentertainment at gmail.com and just let me know, register your interest and... If you're close to here, or even if you're willing to travel, be part of the shoot, be given a role, and then that role can go straight on your CV. Fantastic. Such a great initiative. Really nice that you're getting people into the industry, mate. So well done. Fantastic. One of the things we like to ask all our guests is, do you have a guilty pleasure? Is there a film that you absolutely love, can be Chronicles of Riddick if you like, that no one else seems to get, but you, it really resonates with you? My guilty pleasure, I'd say it's a film that's slated by a hell of a lot of people for its lack of story. But for me, it would be the stunningly beautiful visual feast that is Sucker Punch. <laughs> a lot of people dislike it, but the visual style of it, I think is, is fantastic. Like I say, that's the story is lacking. That's the real shame, bro, because you know, um, you're doing so well. But I, I'm a huge, huge Jack fan of... Then, right? I'm a huge fan of Zack Snyder. Um, I think the man's oh, a, no. the cinematography <laughs> and imagery you cannot deny whether you like him or hate him. The hate cinematography him. is is undeniable. So I think he's not one of the best storytellers. I 100% agree, um, mm. but he's definitely one of the most visionary directors out there. That's a yeah. fair statement. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and as far as guilty pleasures go, I think you've nailed the brief. Let's go again! He does not get it! We do review two films each week, and this week the films were picked by Mercer. So, tell us your picks and your thoughts, Benjamin. Right, so the two films this week were, well, it was supposed to be Kajillionaire. Unfortunately, some cinemas closed, first I'm hearing of it. We decided to move uh, in a different track for that one, so we watched Rocks, 
which has just been put out on Netflix, but it was released in the US by Altitude Films. And then the other film was also on Netflix, which was The Social Dilemma. So I think we should start with Rocks because we found out this week that apparently filmmaking is an unviable job. And mm. this is a beautiful London set film which celebrates what, what it means to be a filmmaker right now. So let's start with Rocks. Surely I did not go through all of this for nothing. I think you should tell someone about your mum. It's just you and Emmanuel. You wouldn't understand. What's the problem? Talk to me. I, I don't, don't need get you it. to worry for me. You're nothing such a. Rocks is the new film by Sarah Gavron, who did Suffragette in 2015 and Brick Lane in 2007. The film stars Bucky Buckray as Olu Shola, nicknamed Rocks a black British teenage girl in London whose single mother abandons her and her younger brother, Emmanuel, forcing them to fend for themselves with the help of her local friends. What do people think of this? I loved it. Correct. Um, this, <laughs> this, this smacked me right away as being so authentic. You get, you get pulled into the world they've created so effectively and it, almost had a documentary feel to it it's as if i was gonna say it was a bit docudrama wasn't it yeah it's almost as if the cameras are accidentally following this this group of characters as a go about their real life um i love the focus on on the tight school years friendship and the support systems they're creating for each other at that stage of their lives uh, i thought emmanuel was the star of the show he was so lovable so genuine and the point towards the end where he's getting taken out of the house, my heart broke for them both because that was exactly the situation they've been fighting so hard to avoid. Uh, you can feel this was a collaboration piece. Every member of the cast was clearly deeply involved, not just in the character, but in the development and the telling of the whole story. It was really interesting to discover how this piece was made with lots of input. They did workshops in local schools and inner London schools. The cast itself had lots and lots of input into, into the filmmaking and the storytelling. And I think that's a great way to, to make a story like this because the collaborative energy jumped off the screen. Every single person on screen had a story to tell and was intertwined with Brox's kind of main story. I thought it was shot beautifully it's parts of london i'm very familiar with kind of the dalston hackney area i um, spent a lot of time around there i think the performances were great i think a lot of it felt very natural almost ad-libbed in a way um, and that just added to the story tell me what do you want to do i want to be a lawyer a lawyer yeah and you know you need to have very high level. levels to be a lawyer she does have high levels though. well your levels aren't as high as they might need to be if you want to be a lawyer. It's always a good idea to have a backup plan, a plan B. So it was a little, a little slow for me in part. I think it, it, the story seemed to falter in certain places. But then the last thirty minutes, I was, I was, I was gripped. I was hoping for the best. But yeah, I don't, I don't want to give away any kind of outcome. But loved it. Yeah, great pick. Where do you think it faltered then? Falter's probably the wrong word. It's just the first... I mean, it's only a short film. It's what, an hour and 31 or minutes, something? Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just about 35, 40 minutes in. It just felt like a little bit of repetition. And I think it was just my impatience because I was rooting for the characters. I mm. just wanted somebody to do something like, please ask for help. Somebody give them some help. And I think it was more my frustration as a viewer rather than a fault in the story. I think that's probably a more appropriate way of saying it. All I can do is just echo... Well, you've said, Hammond, I mean, the performances were fantastic. Everything was so natural. So it was like a fly on the wall documentary uh, in, a, in a lot of aspects. I found it difficult towards the beginning because that sort of East London sort of language is a bit that's currently being used. It's some, sometimes impenetrable and it, it took a while to tune your ear in to, to it, particularly in the group scenes when the group of friends were together and the dialogue was so quick and overlapping. But I thought the relationship between Rox and her brother was incredible. The relationship between Rox and her best friend was 
beautifully played out in terms of the the rejection that the friend felt when Rox was concentrating on trying to look after herself and her brother was beautiful. But then the resolution of that. The one scene in particular that got me and one particular line that got me, and I I had to write it down because it just broke my heart, but it was just, it it perfectly encapsulated uh, how really sort of young people think. And it was what the the brother said to her when they went to the hotel for the first time. And he he was trying to make her feel better about everything. Close your eyes. Think of everything that is happy and keep on breathing in and out. And stop thinking about all your worries. Are you happy? Then the way he delivered it, it was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Mm. But, but across the whole thing, his performance was so real. It was a real almost lack of awareness of the fact that he was being filmed mm. which is what you, mm. you you dream of uh, with, with somebody in front of the camera you just want that naturalism there but th- th- i mean that came across from the entirety but i do agree with you ben that there was a, a level of repetitions not quite the word but it's yeah we're within that first half an hour 40 minutes where it was a little bit rinse and repeat in a, in a couple of aspects um, and but again, I think for the same as you, I want. I just wanted to know what was going to happen and what was going to happen to them. Yeah. Let's let's see where this goes. So yeah, but a fantastic mm-hmm. film. I felt like the locations were awesome. Seeing it from a, sp- a perspective that I hadn't seen. So obviously, putting a cinema camera somewhere changes everyone's perspective. So seeing obviously walking past some of those places, seeing it through a cinema camera, th- seeing it through a lens, um, I thought was really cool just to see it from that different perspective. And the other thing was the costumes. I thought really really worked because. The costumes got more colourful as good things were happening, and as bad things were happening, the colours in the costumes got a little more drab. So I thought, as a reflection of the the story, the, the costumes were great. So, yeah. Wow. It's interesting that you, you sort of all struggled with the, the rinse and repeat nature of the first sort of 30, 40 minutes. I mean, this is a teenager. She's, what, 15, 16 years old. Emmanuel is seven six seven, And there, when, when the mother like, sort of flees the, flees the nest... What else are they supposed to do but sort of go to school and try and carry with some sort of normality, mm. some sort of routine? So I think naturally that is embedded into the story. And do you think that the film really found its pace when the confrontation with the girl that was from Nottingham came into play and their relationship? Do you think that's when it sort of started to break that mould? Yeah, potentially. I mean, it, it certainly added an interesting element into the film and an interesting character. That, a bit of you know, Yeah, mm. conflict. And even, you know, when they're in the cooking class, uh, you know, Rox has got all sorts to deal with in her personal life, but yet she still went out of her way to try and make that girl feel welcome and bring her into it. So that was really touching. As, as a character, she clearly they they were trying to emphasise that she has just a very beautiful, caring nature, and she wants to protect and look after those mm. around her. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe you're right, Ben. I just think, like I said, I don't think the story. The pacing wasn't an issue. I just think me as a viewer, I just, it was just frustrating. Just like, come on, something good happened to these people for God's sake. Yeah. The, the one thing that I have, well, the one flaw I had with the film was just that there was no resolution between that conflict between those two characters. It kind hmm. of ebbs away towards the end and we see the resolution between, well, I, I don't want to spoil it. It's an absolutely incredible film. I, it's, I know what you're saying about the dialogue, Paul, but as Ben said, like this 
way that it's shot in such a sort of documentary style, I think you would have lost some of the 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 elements of their friendship, the bond that those those girls have. I think that would have been lost if they were trying to make the dialogue a bit more coherent or a bit more. You oh, needed that no, kind of don't get me wrong. I, I'm, talking on top of each yeah, other. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not expect, uh, saying that they should have all been speaking in uh, in received pronunciation in RP. Uh, you know, <laughs> it shouldn't have been like an early forties BBC radio drama. But it's it's, it's just because <laughs> yeah. I, it's it's such a it's it's obviously because it's a very commonplace thing now in London, but whenever well, it, I hear it, 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 jar, it tends to jar with me initially. So it takes me a while to get my ear in. I mean, it was, it, it, it had to be that because of where it was set. I mean, it, it's, it's ideally, but it just took my ear a little while just to tune in, uh, to be able to pick up all the nuances of the, because of, all the performances were so good. I didn't want to miss anything, uh, but it just took mm. my ear a little while to just get in there. Great. And pick number two. When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident. That's a design technique. So yes, that brings us on to The Social Dilemma. This is a documentary directed by Jeff Olawiski, who directed 2017's Chasing Coral, which was for Netflix as well, and 2012's Chasing Ice. This explores the rise of social media and the damage it has caused to society, focusing on its exploitation of its users for financial gain through surveillance and data monitoring, and how its very design is meant to encourage addiction in its use, and how this affects the mental health, uh, particularly the mental health of adolescents and teens. I... I'm going to start on this because I think I know what everyone else is going to say. (laughs) (laughs) I want to just like try and start with the positive here. The insights and the hosts, talking heads, everyone that they gathered for this documentary, the insight these people have is absolutely great. The central point of the subject matter is absolutely terrifying. After I watched this, I was like, yeah, well, we're all fucked. Brilliant. And also (laughs) this doesn't, (laughs) this doesn't like resonate. (laughs) This isn't about me. Like I'm totally in control of my phone use. And literally 15 minutes later, I caught myself absentmindedly scrolling through Facebook, clicking on a link that said 15 times the DVD box set has been better than the actual film it it contained. And I was like, ah, like I just dropped my phone. It was like, I stubbed my toes. Like I'm, I'm literally doing exactly what this documentary says. So like Uh all good documentaries, it's got something that resonates with you. It's got something that hooks with you. Something that makes a lasting impression. Brilliant. That's great. However, I started watching this and I don't know about you, but I felt so uncomfortable about 20 minutes or so in, I, I, I just felt, what, why is this so weird? What's, what's going on here? And there's a, there's a, a talking head from one of the guys at the interview, Jaron Lanier, who wrote 10 arguments for deleting your social media account. He has this great quote. He says, the very meaning of culture is manipulation. We've put deceit and sneakiness at the absolute center of everything we do online. I was like, oh, this is what the documentary's doing. It is being so sneaky and deceitful in the way that it's put together to try and buy us in, to try and reel us in. And I have absolutely no idea why there's a a dramatization of a a family, um, a sort of middle American family in this documentary to sort of show in real time, oh, this is what's actually happening to the family. It's like, we get it, mate, like bludging us over the head, like, oh, this is all the things we're talking about. And here's a reenactment of how how um, how it actually plays out. And that's before we get into the fact that they visualize the Facebook algorithm with three madmen, I say madmen because it's Vincent Kafizer who was in Mad Men, and they're all there like trying to like steal the teen's attention in this like virtual VR hellscape. That's mm-hmm. obvious, but then we get into the other stuff. Like, why are all the talking heads on green screen? Why is there so many animated sections where we're literally being shown a hand controlling us like with puppet strings? Like, we get it. Like, why are you bludging us over the head? Why are they doing that thing that all media does where it shows like a, an Iron Man style kind of like text and images like popping up next to them? 
them like we're in some sort of fucking Marvel film. Why is it doing all this stuff? You've got a great concept here. Why are you using all these techniques over the top? And the most bizarre point was when they're talking about teen suicide rates, they show this graph and they have a shoe and the shoelace of a converse shoe. The mm -hmm. shoelace is actually drawing the path on the diagram uh, to show that suicide rates are up. And that's a horrific statistic, but I'm just thinking, fuck, am I watching Brasso right now? Is this Chris <laughs> Morris? Like, it literally reminded me of the episode of Brasso where he's got, like, the fox's heads on, like, poles to illustrate how nonsense, <laughs> uh, like, hyper-surreal or, or hyper-sensational media is. And that was 97. He made this point 23 years ago that you don't need to do these stupid graphs to illustrate your point. The evil in our relationship remains a paradox. If you plot number of animals abused against what makes people cruel versus intelligence of either party, the pattern is so unreadable, you might as well draw in a chain of fox heads on sticks. How did they miss the point of that? It's oh, it was uh, just. I mean, Ben, if you can just tell us how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry for making you watch it. So before I begin, I genuinely went into this with a completely open mind. Yes, I hate the subject matter, but I do love a doc. So I went into this as a doc fan and not a social media hater. However, this film should have been called Social Media for Fucking Idiots because <laughs> yes. That's it, it, it's not the social dilemma. There was nothing in here that was new, that was revolutionary, that was shocking, apart from maybe some of the worst filmmaking I have ever seen. It was abhorrent to watch. Perhaps, perhaps if you fell into a coma in the mid-90s and you've just woken up, this could be a nice introduction into how the internet works for you. Um, but I don't see a purpose for it outside of that scope. The delivery mechanism was awful. Part doc, part film, part three guys in a virtual lab saying, Completely we need to get his attention. Dial this up and dial it. Oh, dre dreadful mechanism. Weird and unnecessary, boring quotes, painfully dull interviews, former and current tech guys looking purposefully sad at their part of creating this situation. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked, is being measured. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. Exactly what image you stop and look at, for how long you look at it. Oh yeah, seriously, for how long you look at it. Only slight interesting thing I found about this is that everyone that had a VP or senior VP or ever job title were barely in their 20s. Like, these guys were former vice presidents of some of the biggest tech companies on the planet, and they're like, 25 years old mm. and in my opinion no wonder it all went to shit because they've got no sense of morality no sense that they were allowed to just play with these tech companies like they were toys and that's why it's got to where it's got now but just don't watch this film it's a pile of shit there's my review <laughs> <laughs> i think it was it was trying to aim itself at a younger demographic and people who aren't really aware of what's going on and showing them a world that they're growing up to and, and stuff they don't probably realize like the, the three guys in the lab things that happen it basically trying to make you think beyond what you see. I thought it was a, a, a warning to good people and a wake-up call for bad people using the internet for bad. It could have been great, but it just wasn't. Paul, are you, you going to save this documentary? This was fucking dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. The message of the documentary was in the blurb before you actually watched the documentary. Social media is evil. We know that. <laughs> Everybody knows that. I didn't need an hour and a half of my life ruined because of it. The weird little video clips reminded me of when you join a new company and you're shown like instructional safety videos. Yeah. 
Yeah. That that was exactly the production value that went into those like weird little clips interspersed. I think Brad made an interesting point that they're using the very techniques that these uh, media platforms use to grab people's attention. Maybe we aren't the, t- the target demographic for this documentary, and it is aimed at the people, the very people who are who are trapped in these um, you know these situations. <sighs> Maybe. And I feel like yeah. I think the statistics now are people younger are very very visual learners compared to the different styles of learners that you have in different generations. Mm. And I feel like aiming that at a younger demographic, they purely went for visual memory. And I think that's what not only are we talking about, but that's what other people are going to be talking about and, <laughs> yeah. and sharing around. Mm. Um, but please come So and- that's what's... What's memorable? But please come and find us on yeah. our Facebook page. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I mean, a real, a real mixed I mean, bag. I, I quite like the talking head stuff, but it's clear that you guys just didn't get anything the, from it at all. The talking heads was were the worst. Just dull. Just nothing to say and saying it too loudly. Just shut up. Not you, Ben. Of course. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> So that brings us on to our question and this week. So guys, I don't know if you've uh, been reading the news, uh, apart from crying because it's all awful. And of course we have release the Snyder Cut, hashtag release the Snyder Cut. We're going to see finally, and I know we've all been waiting for this, you guys just keep going on about it. I was, You were like, I really want to see Snyder's Cut of Justice League. <laughs> and you'll be pleased to hear that Warner Brothers are giving him $70 million to do exactly that in what I call pandering yeah. to the fanboys. I think, it's a, I think that sets a dangerous precedent, but we can mm-hmm. come on to that later. But also there's the news emerging now that The Godfather 3 is going to be recut. Rocky 4 is going to be recut by Stallone and they're going to remove the robot. I mean, no. I haven't even seen it. So that leads me to my question, which I posed to you guys over the last couple of weeks. What film would you like to see a recut of by a director or by another director? What film would you like to see another, well, someone else to have another go at? Okay, so be prepared to uh, hate me. Mine, if I could see the, the director's cut of any film, I would go back to the 1989 Batman purely because. I think Tim Burton would have filmed some wacky and weird and really creative stuff hmm. on set that back then I think wouldn't have passed the censors for audiences in that era. So now things in censorship are a little more laxed. Uh, you can get away with a lot more in 15s and 18s. I think some of the deep dark sets of Gotham City in 1989, the stuff that he would have filmed that wouldn't have passed the censors would be great to see. But yeah, no, totally. I think there was a lot of, not interference, definitely I think he was allowed to have a really good go at it, but I think he could have definitely gone way, way out there with it, especially if you you see things like Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, which he'd just made. Um, Yeah, totally. Good answer. Yeah, so I I think in a a very similar vein to what Brad's just said, so it's a film that we've spoken about in the previous series. Now, allegedly, there is an unofficial four-hour bootleg of this film that's been circulating for years, Um, and I would love the opportunity to see what else Reiner had up his sleeve with Spinal Tap. That would be great. For very similar reasons, I think they probably filmed some stuff that absolutely would not have got through the censors. Um, So yeah, so I I can only emulate what you said. I think a a director's cut, obviously we're not going to get it now, um, (laughs) but... Uh, I just think I would love to, but I am going to take this opportunity to protest um, because much like Terminator 2, which was almost flawless, Rocky 4 does not need any additional treatment. (laughs) (laughs) Just leave it alone. It's spectacular exactly where it is. It needs nothing extra. It needs nothing removed. But yeah, my answer is, yeah, Spinal Tap. I want to see if Rob Reiner had anything else up his sleeve. A couple of years ago in 2012, uh, Topher Grace, who is, well, was brilliant in 
Black Klansman. He re-edited the Star Wars prequels into what was called at the time Star Wars Episode 3.5, The Editor Strikes Back. And he cut down Lucas's opius to a 85-minute film of all three prequels. I think it's been 15 years. He's had some time away. Maybe it's time that we let Lucas back at those films and maybe actually make something that's approaching some sort of semblance of a good film. Mm -hmm. I... I went back and rewatched a couple of these recently and I just like the things that really strike me is the thing, the, the quick wins because he hasn't got the budget to refilm. Let's say, let's say he has to use all the footage he's got straight away, cut out all of the pauses and beats before the scenes. Are there or every single, every single scene that starts with like a, some sort of Senate composition or two characters walking along a corridor, which is basically all the prequels are. I counted seven Palpatines before anyone actually says anything. There's at least five <laughs> to seven Palpatine, seven Palpatine, one Palpatine, two Palpatine, three Palpatine character speaks. It's just agonizing. Just get to the dialogue or <laughs> just cut half of the wipes or swipes or dissolves there in this film. I went through um, Revenge of the Sith and I counted every single different type of swipe and wipe in these films. You've got right, left, top, bottom wipe, checkered wipe, clockwise wipe, counterclockwise wipe, Venetian blinds wipe. Maybe these um, phrases mean something to you, Brad, because some of these, yeah. these technical the terms... Stupidest transitions ever used. <laughs> <laughs> fade in, fade out, diagonal top left corner to right corner, then reverse, four quarter box wipe, sides to centre, clock face to centre, clock face to centre screen, opening gate, as in like the screen turns into a gate and it just partitions. Diagonal corners to centre, centre spot dissolve and then centre spot reveal. Fucking hell. There are so many swipes in this film. Just like let him back in and go, Lucas, right, you can't use any single dissolves. Or tell you what, let's have someone else have a go because apart from the last entry in the Star Wars saga, Abrams, I thought, did a fantastic job with The Force Awakens. You've got Johnson, who I did think did a great job with The the Last Jedi. Evans, Favreau with The Mandalorian. I know you're shaking your head, Paul, but I like that film. Um, But just let someone else at it who actually knows what they're doing and then maybe just maybe we can get some good star wars prequel films i mean that is the exact transitions list as listed on microsoft powerpoint (laughs) (laughs) lucas had a toy he wanted to play with it i'm not sure if this technically this counts but uh have you guys seen the reimagined scene 38 scene from star wars the fight between darth vader and obi-wan yes i have yeah it's one of my favorites right so the reason that it came about, these these guys created this scene. They've reshot the fight scene, and it was came on the back of Rogue One because obviously Rogue One ends, and Star Wars: A New Hope picks up about ten fifteen minutes later. At the end of Rogue One, Darth Vader obliterates loads of rebels, rebel soldiers, uh, and just proves you know, how much power he has with the Force. But then when it comes to New Hope, if you just sort of what if you're watching them sort of chronologically, the fight he has with Obi Wan is uh, Obi Wan is is pants by comparison is just that you know this but then obviously it was made in 1977 we meet again at last the circle is now complete when i left you i was but the learner now i am the master so these guys fundamentally recreated that scene with obi-wan and vader age allowing at the peak of their powers and they've completely reshot the whole of the fight scene and interspersed it with the footage from the actual film i would like to see a full version of new hope with this integrated Really, 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 really well into the movie, um, with somebody taking that and 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 putting that in. But hang on, we had that. We had the special editions. No, 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 no. no. With this scene integrated into the movie, 
But you can't have you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't yes, have you can. someone meddling. This with is, something that's the whole point of this question. This is this is what we would like to happen. This you is the whole point of this question. The whole point of this question you, is you, what I would like you, to see. Not? I would like to see that integrated into the film and see it cut with that in into the special editions. Do you or do you not think that the special editions are? Do you think Lucas is correct to keep meddling with the original trilogy? No, not at all. But I I, I think the 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 whole point of of that scene being integrated in fits then aesthetically and and chronologically with now with rogue one because everything's because all this is canon it makes no sense that fight and the way that that's is as was shot back in 1977 does not fit with what was shot for rogue one in the in in that recent film it, but that's what lucas was doing with the special <laughs> editions to make them fit into the prequels no. by adding all these like extra special effects you're essentially Justifying Lucas's actions. Uh, well, no, if, if we can, inter- I have no, I have no issue. I have, it's, but it's for me. It's <laughs> just, it's instead? just in terms of just making logical sense in what happened before. That's what the guys created this scene for. That's what I would mm. like to see integrated back in. And the whole point of this is that this is our personal choice. Nothing is exactly. nothing is nothing <laughs> exactly. is wrong. I would like to see it anyway, integrated but, but, correctly. But, but then, by actual choice, <laughs> is I want to see. I want to see the original cut of Suicide Squad. I want to see the original uh, David Ayer cut. Uh, of that film to see what story he was actually trying to tell. Amazing. Do you think, well, we, do you think we got to your actual though? answer eventually? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I've good? seen a few uh, David Ayer films, and except from Fury, I'd say they're all pretty shy. So <laughs> f- I hope that Ayer Cut brings out the terrible editing that the studio must have done. And I hope that, yeah, it just tells that coherent story. But having seen his other films, I don't hold much uh, hope for. <laughs> It being very good. I think it's people jumping on the bandwagon of the Snyder Cut and thinking, oh, well, uh, Suicide Squad was a bit shit. Maybe we should go back and see if the director (laughs) can do something on that as well. So I I feel like it's it's probably going to happen with some other one, someone else's cut, and it'll just happen for the foreseeable future. Everybody wants something different if they Mm -hmm. don't like that film. Yeah. I would love to see not a director's cut, but an editor's cut of The Irishman. Because for me, mm, that was yeah. one of the most unedited films. It's like I was just watching his raw footage and then the next yeah. bit of raw footage. And I'd see uh, Robert De Niro go from putting his slippers on, shuffling down the corridor, grabbing his keys, unlocking the door, then locking the door, <laughs> then walking down his driveway, then unlocking the car, then getting in the car, then locking the car, then putting his foot on. Oh, it was just absolutely ridiculous. Everything could That whole film could have been cut down to a little less than two hours and I think it would have been great. Um, but there was just plenty of just wasted time Um, so Mm. not a director's cut but an editor's cut would be great (laughs) thank you very much indeed so we do have to review two films for the next podcast and these are oh no Spring's turn. <laughs> what have you got for us, Paul? Well, what we're going to watch uh, over the next couple of weeks is the personal history of David Copperfield on Prime, and we're going to watch the trial of the Chicago Seven on Netflix, which is Aaron Sorkin's uh, written and also directing this. It's got Sasha Baron Cohen. Looks fantastic. Obviously, it's a true story. So, yeah, those are the two that we're going to be reviewing in two weeks' time. So we do have an end of pod question. Now, I'm hoping this one is a little trickier, but maybe not. So the evil Disney Corporation are well known for their princesses. Who or which is the only Disney princess so far to have had a baby? Ah, good one. Ah, good one. Good question. So yeah, only one Disney princess so far has had a baby, and I want to know who it is. So if you do know the answer, um, clearly I've stumped these guys. Finally, it's taken about fifteen episodes to get here. (laughs) 
hit us up on the Facebook page, uh, hit us up on the Gmail, seenthispod at gmail.com. But that is all that we have time for this week. So thank you all very much for pressing play and to listen to us right through to the end credits. Paul, Ben, pleasure as always. And Brad, our guest, thank you so, so much for giving us your time today, mate. It's been fantastic. Well, thank uh, you for having me. Stay safe, everyone. And please, if a cinema is open near you, uh, go along and watch something, anything. Mm. <laughs> yeah again brad thank you so much for coming on it's been a genuine pleasure just everybody just you know if you can't be good be careful i just want to say thank you for having me it's been an absolute pleasure good luck with the the slow reopen of everything and i hope audiences flock back to cinemas soon i'm sure they will let's hope so awesome remember to check out lyceum entertainment check out infamous on amazon prime and we look forward to Redcoat when that drops awesome thank you very much <laughs> You've been listening to Have You Seen This with Paul Breen, Ben Hammond and Ben Mercer. The main theme was written by Akira Ifakubi and remixed by Ben Mercer with beats supplied by Lander. Additional content was supplied by Ada McCaffrey and the Movie News Podans. Please like and subscribe and share where possible and check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash seen this, S-C-E-N-E this for all the latest updates. All views and opinions in the podcast are those of their hosts.